Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 39 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today's guest is Kathleen. Kathleen lost her daughter, Emily, several years ago at 15 years of age. When Emily was first diagnosed with Liz encephaly, she was only expected to live until about the age of two. Obviously, she defied the odds and lived far longer than her life expectancy. For as long as Kathleen can remember, she has loved to write. She prefers poetry to any other writing style. Over the past several years, she really found that writing helped her heal during this long grief journey. She would often post her poetry to Facebook, and friends and family would comment on it, telling her how wonderful it would make them feel. She was encouraged then to write a book of poetry, which she has done. Now that she has completed the book, she is looking for a publisher to help get this book of poetry out so others can appreciate it as well. Throughout this episode, you will hear several of her poems, and I will also put one in print in on my website and Facebook page. For those of you who may have published your own book or know anything about publishing books of poetry, you can comment in the comment section on my webpage, or you can send me an email that I can forward on to Kathleen to give her some additional help. Overall, I hope you enjoy hearing about Emily, their story, and Kathleen's poetry. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for agreeing to come on the show today and being my guest. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you, Marcy. Oh, good. I'm looking forward to telling my story. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for agreeing to tell your story. I'm excited to hear it because I don't know very much about it either. So why don't you start out by just telling us all about your daughter? All right. Well, I think I'll, because my situation is kind of unique, um, I'm going to kind of tell you in story form, okay, I guess. I think that's so, perfect. Okay, so this was a second marriage for me. I had I have an older daughter, and she's married, has children, lives out in California. I didn't really think I'd have any more children, but uh, when I got married a second time, my husband had been married before, and um, unfortunately lost his wife at age 33 to cancer and they never were able to have any children. So he was really wanting to have children. And I told him when we got married, I said, I don't know if I can or not. I'm an older mom, but, um, I was 41 at the time. So I did, mm -hmm. I got pregnant. Mm -hmm. It was very exciting. Um, you know, some ups and downs with the pregnancy, but nothing, you know, serious. And she was born and she was absolutely stunningly beautiful right from like 
you know, how some babies come out, they don't look so great. She came out yes. looking like an angel. I mean, she was just so beautiful right from birth on. You know, we were very excited. But right off the bat, there was there started to have problems. Like she just would not nurse well. Well, that's not such an uncommon thing. Some babies don't nurse well and, you know, they have mm-hmm. issues. So I kept trying for a while. She started losing weight. So then we um, put her on a formula and she did okay with that for a little while. And then she just kept projectile vomiting and she couldn't hold it down. So this is going over months now. And, um, you know, finally we thickened it. So that worked for a while. But I mean, obviously something wasn't right. Oh, probably around three or four months, we started noticing she wasn't grasping for things. She wasn't trying to roll over. All babies by that age are trying to do so. My doctor was monitoring it. And initially, I have to say, honestly, I wasn't concerned because I'm like, I, you know, I'm an older mom. I've seen a lot of things. Some babies just move that thing slower, you know, or maybe it's denial in your mind, you know, I don't know. So probably around the six month period, uh, my doctor started talking to me about, well, maybe we should get some testing done, maybe seven months like that. I'm like, okay. So we were looking into um, some of the area resources for, you know, testing. So this is where my story jumps. (laughs) So she was about nine months old she had finally put on some weight. She was this gorgeous baby with this golden blonde curly hair, big blue eyes, just absolutely the most beautiful skin on the face of the earth. I died as skin like that. It was just creamy and pink cheeks, just a beautiful child. But she couldn't help you at all. So when you would lift her, she like, you know, most babies after some point, you can put them on your hip and they kind of hold on to you. She's yeah. always like dead weight, just dead weight. So even then lifting her was challenging because you know, she gave you no help at all. And you don't realize how much that helps till they're not helping. Anyway, when she turned about nine months, my mom had breast cancer and she lives over in Wisconsin. And so I was going to take Emily and we were going to go and stay with her post-op for a week. The siblings were all taking a week. And I said, well, I can do after. So I got Emily all packed and the car all packed and she was in her car seat and we were getting ready to leave. And I glanced over at her and she was blinking. She was kind of doing this weird blinking thing and I was like mm-hmm. that looks strange and I kept watching her and yep she kept doing it It was very subtle but it was odd and my first thought was is that a seizure that I'd never seen mm-hmm. a seizure but for some reason that popped in my mind so then I thought you know I'm gonna call her doctor's office well her doctor who was aware that there was potentially something maybe not quite right was not in and another doctor was and when I told her she goes oh I wouldn't worry about it just go see your mom you know I went Okay, so stopped at my sister's. Yeah, the blinking was still there. Got up to my mom's and it got worse. I ended up calling the ER there and talking to somebody and they said, you really should just go home. They said, because, you know, she really needs to get tested. And if you test her here, you're going to turn around and do it again at home. So get yourself home. So in the meantime, she picked up uh, at my sister's, no, no offense to her. So you don't have to even add that part of the story, but her kids were sick and Emily picked it up which is very typical with kids who have seizures, which we find out later she did. I mean, she had eye infection, ear infection, sinus infection. Uh, I mean, every kind of infection you can imagine. And this blinking got really bad. So by the time I got home, I took her to ER. They ended up doing a CAT scan. And of course, they can never tell you anything. So they said, you need to call your doctor right away tomorrow. So like, okay, you know. So um, we went to the my doctor the next day and basically she sat down and said your daughter has a condition called it's a rare brain disorder it's called lysencephaly 
and it means smooth brain. So basically her brain stopped growing somewhere earlier on in the pregnancy. And of course, my first question was, was it because I was an older mom, you know? And she said, no, this is not anything to do with that. It's just a random, you know, mm-hmm. condition that can happen. Um, but she said, from everything that I have, well, she said, there's not a lot of information out there, but what I've read is that um, she probably won't live past two. She will not be able to, you know, she'll have seizures. She'll have reflux problems. She will not ever walk or talk or maybe eat. She will have choking issues at some point. I shut down, <laughs> you know, here's my yeah. beautiful baby. And this woman is telling me she's nine months old now. And there's somebody she won't live past two. I mean, devastating. I couldn't yeah. breathe. I really, I don't remember anything else that happened in that meeting. Uh, one of the ways that I, I'm going to throw this in now, one of the ways that I worked through my journey with Emily, and I've always done this anyway, but was to write. And I've not been as much a journaler as putting my things in more of a poetic form. So I'm going to read to you a poem that I wrote after I came back from the doctors and got this information. Great. The poem is called No Words. I awake, and for that moment between sleep and waking, when your mind floats in the safe, warm space, I breathe, calm, normal. Then I remember, and rising up from my very soul comes a sorrow so deep, I crumble in a heap on the floor and crawl my way to her room. There she sleeps, so beautiful it is painful. I lift her out tenderly and rock her in my arms with deep lamenting moans passed down from centuries of other grieving parents. No mother or father should ever have to carry this kind of pain. It was then we began the journey of losing Emily. We always knew we would lose her at any given time. So I hold her closer and vow to hold on as long as she is with me, however long we are allotted. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So that started a roller coaster into a whole brand new world. I mean, our world was never the same again. No. Not only knowing that our child would not live at that point, thinking past two, but also the the world of special needs children with the all the multiple doctors and medications, some that would work, some that wouldn't, and you'd try this and you'd try that, and you know, it'd work for a while and then it wouldn't. And um, initially her seizures were not real bad. She didn't have any like grand mal for quite a few years. They were all more subtle things, but nevertheless still scary because you never knew. Mm-hmm. One of the therapies that we put her through was a, a feeding therapy to see if we could get her to eat orally because at that point she was having a hard time. And every time we would try and feed her, she just wasn't like she couldn't manage her tongue. So we had to teach her how to manage her tongue to swallow. So for a little while, she did okay. And she started eating some baby food, mashed bananas and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden she started projectile vomiting every time we would feed her. And it would take like two hours to get any food down. And and the scary part about that was that her meds were in that food and she needed those meds. And so the doctor suggested to us that we have a G-tube put in her stomach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, nobody wants that. You know, you want to keep your child as normal as possible, as long as possible. And so we dragged our feet and we dragged our feet. And finally, we realized that for her and in the end, really for us too, 
we needed mm -hmm. to give it and have it done. So she went into the hospital and actually had a G-tube put in, at which point then for several years, she only was fed through the G-tube. I forgot to mention something kind of crucial too. The week that I found out about Emily, that we found out about Emily's diagnosis, I had a gynecologist appointment and I went in, I'm in this like deep state of shock and grieving. She said, I need you to sit down. And I'm like, what? She said, um, you're pregnant. Oh, wow. And um, <laughs> yeah, so I have a nine month old baby. I'm pregnant. I don't know if my child's condition is genetic. So I don't know if my second child will have the same thing or could have the same thing. I have no idea. So needless to say, my dear Anna's pregnancy was a very stressful pregnancy because yeah. there were so many unknowns. And then in the course of the pregnancy, we were so wrapped up in all the Emily things, you know, teaching her how to sit up, helping her with her eating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And then my dear little Emily decided, to, or Anna decided to come three weeks early. Uh, one of the problems that you have when you have special needs children with medical issues is finding childcare. It's a very, mm -hmm. very challenging thing. I, I only had one family member in the area, and that was my sister. And um, she worked full time and had some medical issues of her own. So she, and suddenly I had to go to the doc, I had to go to the hospital now. We, we called my aunt over to come, but she forgot her glasses. So she couldn't read the med bottles. I mean, it was just like this scary moment, oh, no. but it all worked out. My mother-in-law came down when Anna was just ready to, uh, right toward the end of the uh, birthing process, she, her blood pressure dropped, mine dropped. As it turns out, she had the cord wrapped around her neck three times. Oh, no. Thank God. I had a wonderful midwife through the hospital, you know, hooked up with a doctor who was unable, was able to un un untangle my daughter's neck. And she was born, you know, and she was fine and completely normal. Everything was great. But it was a very stressful, stressful period for those months. Um, not knowing what was going to happen. As it turns yeah. out, the genetic factor, it was a very small percent chance of anybody else in the family having it. So that was a relief for everyone. So anyway, we entered this world now and I have a baby. I have two babies, really. You know, I have yes. Anna and I have Emily. So it's like having twins. So all those, so, you know, we roll into all these years with all the different doctors and the different therapies and, you know, Mary Freebed. Um, I tried at one point in my very innocent ignorance to put her in one of the preschools here in the area because I'm like, hey, you know, kids can go to any school. And I thought that would be good. They came to my house and tried very kindly and gently to persuade me this was not the right situation for my daughter. But I was innocent and ignorant at that moment and insisted upon it. So they had to get an aid, which is one of the reasons they didn't want to have to mess with it. It, it was a disaster. She was not anywhere right for that classroom because she was, it turns out she was severely multiply impaired. You know, inclusion is a grand idea, but it's not always practical for the child, you know? Yeah. So we ended up pulling her out midway through the year. And then when she turned four, we ended up sending her to Lincoln Developmental. Wonderful. I can. I, I want to put in a plug for the school. The teachers and the staff are so incredibly amazing. They are most big-hearted, kind people to work with these children day after day. I mean, they, in the end, really spend more waking hours with your child than you do. Mm -hmm. Emily was 
a very sweet personality. Everybody just fell in love with her. You know, she was just a little school angel. Her teachers loved her so much they wouldn't even, they would work out ways to keep her in their classroom longer so that, you know, they could have her longer. So in the end, she was there from the time she was four till she passed. She only had two teachers, really. One she was just supposed to go into, and then, of course, she was gone. So that didn't go, she didn't go there for but two weeks. But both of those teachers just adored her and were so good to all of us as well as family and supportive. So I, I really want to put in a plug for the school because I, I don't even know how I would have gotten through some of those years without their support. Yeah, you really just need people to be beside you and helping you. And when they're knowledgeable like that, it's yes. just so valuable. Mm-hmm. Well, they understood my journey because I'd watched it so many times with so many other children. They understood the fears. They understood the sorrows. They understood the little joys, the little moments that there would be a progress. It, it was a really big highlight to have. Again, going back to childcare, though, that was always a big issue. And if you could find anybody, it was expensive. Mm-hmm. And we just did not have the money. I wasn't able to work when Emily was with me. So I, you know, on my husband's income, there was just not a lot of extra left for stuff like that. So I ended up getting hooked up with hospice. Well, I guess I should jump back to one part of the story. When she was three, we took her down to Chicago to see the leading specialist for lysencephaly. That was quite an interesting experience. First of all, he told us that with her particular form of lysencephaly, she would probably, he'd never seen anyone live past 10. So at least that gave us hope that she would be with us longer than two. You know, she had just Mm -hmm. passed two. But he kind of gave us a hard time about putting the G-tube in. It was a really interesting scenario. He kind of almost, the feeling I felt was like, you've ruined it now. Now you're going to be stuck with this kid because he put the G-tube in her. And it was it was not oh. a good, I mean, he was very, I'm sure he was brilliant in, in the details of the condition, but he had not much bedside manner. And um, in no. fact, interestingly enough, Emily was a very passive child. She didn't react to a lot of things in any particular format usually, but he started flipping her around like she was an inanimate object. And I was just seething. And Emily all of a sudden stiffened up and looked at him like, don't do that to me. It was, <laughs> it was one of those moments when she showed her, you know, where she really was and what she was aware of. And then he he looked, the doctor looked at me and said, hey, she's not cooperating. What is wrong? And I'm like, I looked at him and I said, well, it could be because she's severely multiply impaired. You know, maybe that's yeah. part of the reason. And she can tell you not treating her like a human. So yeah. on that note, I do want to throw in that for parents with special needs children, it's very vital to be an advocate for your child. You need to be yes. the one that follows through and calls the doctor and follows up with the doctors and pushes with the doctors because you know your child, they don't. So, you know, we tried to live as comfortably as we could through the years. She she learned how to sit up. She learned how to roll. She learned how to um, scoot. She'd sit on her bottom and she would scoot around the house. And for a, a short period, I mean, uh, the problem with a uh, condition like Emily's is if she would have a bout of seizures, sometimes she would kind of lose those skills and we'd have to reteach them or she never got them back. I mean, it was mm-hmm. crap shoot that way. But for a period there, she really scooted around the house and it was really kind of fun because it's like she had some of her own mobility. And mm-hmm. so she would scoot in the kitchen by me. She didn't like to be alone if we weren't in the room with her. So she'd scoot in the kitchen and look in the oven door. And But my favorite fun memory is my daughter was really into American Idol at the time, and there was somebody on there, I think his name was David Archuleta. And so she had a poster of him up in her room. And Emily used to scoot into my daughter's room and sit under that poster and just stare at it. 
And we just laughed all the time because it's like, oh my gosh, I think she has a, a crush on David Archuleta. <laughs> but it was just fun to see her have little bits of her personality would come through because unlike having your, your typical, I don't like to say normal, so typical child, we'd hardly ever know what she was thinking or feeling. We had to kind of feel and guess and hope we grasped the, what it was. Mm -hmm. The other thing that she learned how to do, she had to learn how to bear weight. That was a whole big, another process. And eventually she learned how to walk kind of with this specialized gait trainer, it's called. She's all strapped in and has a big thing on the top, so can't fall at all. And so they, they put her in this at school, but they could never get her to move on her own. Well, they had a computer in the room that had a touch screen, and she loved that computer. And so one day, she was on the other side of the room, and some kid was on the computer. On the, She saw that, and all of a sudden, she took off across the room in that gate, <laughs> pushed the kid out of the way, and started her little thing. It's kind of like, I missed my daughter's first steps, you know what I mean, of her own volition. So that was really good. And then... Then she was everywhere. Like they had to watch the door because if it was open, she'd take off and go down the hallway. It was like, finally, she was like, wow, freedom. I can go here. And oh, go I can here. do this. Yeah. I know. So another fun memory I have is out in the yard. One day I brought her home and I had the gate trainer here and I'd gone shopping. So I was hauling the groceries in. I put her in there thinking, oh, she'll stay up by the house. Well, well, I come out after bringing a load in and I can't find her anywhere. And I'm looking and I'm looking. And I look in the garage and around the garage. No, Emily, I'm panicking. She had gone down her driveway and was right by the edge of the road. So, Oh, my word. And I have a little, you know, not a short driveway, but not a long, long driveway, somewhere in between. And I'm like, oh, my word. So I bring her back up to the house. She goes again. So I take my van and I block off the driveway. Well, darn little stinker decides to go around it. So, you know, from these kind of things, there's more going on in Emily's mind and, and head than meets the eye. You know, they said her age ability was probably like between six and 18 months. But I think there were some areas and levels that she was definitely beyond mm -hmm. that. One precious thing about Emily was that she really touched the people that came into her life. And everybody who came to know her always, the one thing they would always say is, she makes me feel really special. She had a way of looking at you that was just very genuine. Mm -hmm. We tried to live our life the best that we could. You know, we did what we were able to with her. We would go on uh, up to my mother-in-law's up in Manistee a lot. And I hear I want to put in a little plug for my mother-in-law because my husband is an only child. So these were her only grandchildren and she adored them. And she really adored Emily and learned all of all of all the things that needed to happen for her care. She ended up being a vital part of our support system, even though you know she didn't live right here. So it wasn't like, hey mom, can you come over for a couple hours? But she would come often and so we would go visit her a lot. We took the ferry across the lake a couple times. That was interesting with Emily, visited my mom. We only really went on a couple of vacations with her. It was I know other parents did it and I give them kudos and credit for it, but there is so much you have to take to go on a vacation. Yeah. It was an overwhelming venture. You know, you couldn't ever just hop in a car and go anywhere. Like I always mm -hmm. made sure I had everything extra with me. And especially because of the seizures, I had to have like her diastat with me. So the seizures increasingly got worse. And one of the things I can say is it was hard. She would have seizures anywhere. I mean, yeah. she had them in church, she had them in the grocery store, she had them at Chuck E. Cheese's, she had them in the library. One time in the library, she had a bad seizure, and I had to take her out of her chair, lay her on the floor, 
and give her a diastat, which was something you had to do rectally, but you know, there was nothing, I had no choice. Um, yeah. I do want to, I do want to tell one story that was really beautiful besides the fact that she had a bad seizure. We were on our way up to Manistee and stopped in Coopersville for gas and Emily had a seizure and she was not breathing well. And that wasn't always the case. Her seizures were all very different. Some, some were much more traumatic than others. Sometimes she would come out of them on her own and some of them were long, some of them were short. Sometimes she would come out of them and act like nothing happened. Sometimes she would come out of them and be in like a comatose state for days. I mean, you just never knew yeah. what was going to be. But we stopped in Coopersville and she was having this seizure. And finally I told my husband, I said, you know what? She's not coming out of it. We need to call 911. So we did. And the first responders came. And so to set up this picture, it was this blustery April day, cold rain wind, just intensive wind. So the first responder comes to the side of the van and of course they don't have oxygen or anything. So they couldn't really do much for her, but he was trying to, you know, loosen things and do what he could. But the wind was just like blowing in on him. So some guy came and took his coat and put it behind him to block the wind from coming into the van, which was such a beautiful moment to see, you know, yes. and then another guy came and pulled his van behind this guy to block the wind. I don't know. I just will always remember how, you know, the kindness of people in situations, you know, like that. And then they finally did come and asked, where did I want her to go? And it was going to be 20 minutes to Muskegon or 20 minutes to Grand Rapids. And of course, all our doctors are at Grand Rapids. But all we could do was follow. And so that was really scary, too. I mean, we weren't in the ambulance with her at that time. We didn't know if she was going to be okay. How was that going to go? It was just many moments like that. Yeah. That was pretty much how it went. Um, she just kept getting bigger. She was like 80 pounds toward the end, which was really hard to lift. It was like lifting a bag of noodles mm -hmm. with oil on them. <laughs> there was just nothing yeah. to help you, you know. And I had a bad back before. And so my back was really starting to have problems. It got toward the end where we really almost became close to housebound just because... Um, lifting her in and out of her chair or anything was just too much. Mm -hmm. So she had her 15th birthday. And um, I guess this is the part where we'll go into, you know, her yeah. passing. There was nothing particular going on different than normal. Okay. My mom decided for, my mom had been sick for years off and on and had not been able to travel, but for whatever reason, she was feeling a little better. Well, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, I feel it was very providential. But she hadn't seen Emily in a long time, and we hadn't been able to get Emily over there in a long time. She felt this strong push in her something that said she needed to get over here and see Emily. So she took the ferry across and was visiting. We had a wonderful evening together Sunday night, and Emily came home from school on Monday, and we had another nice evening. But Emily was really manicky, hyper that night. One of the behaviors she would have off and on, thumping a leg or thumping an arm or doing some kind of repetitive motion. And she just seemed somewhat agitated. But at least my mom got to spend some time with her. Mm -hmm. That night when I put her to bed, she was really agitated. I would often lay with her at night if she was having a seizure or had had a seizure just to comfort her and be there with her comfort myself sometimes, you know, to be mm -hmm. close to her. She was aggravated. I mean, she was really thumping her legs. So I kind of slung my leg over her to keep him still. And she was grasping, grasping on my arm, which was kind of an unusual movement. She didn't usually do that. But finally, she settled down and went to sleep restlessly, but went to sleep and I was exhausted. So I went to bed. So the next morning, my daughter and my husband left. My husband went to work. My daughter went to school. 
and my husband always put her on her food pump before he left. And uh, I went in there to take her off. And I thought, wow, she's really sleeping peacefully, which oftentimes she would look like that sleeping. Like we would check her breath because she slept so still. So I was thinking, I just thought that was one of those times, you know, and I thought, I wonder if she's cold. And my hand brushed her hand and inside me, I knew, I mean, it it didn't all formulate, but I I knew, I just knew that she was gone. And so then of course I felt her, her pulse and her chest and went by her face and I cannot really describe what that moment felt like, you know, because even all these years that every night we would kiss her goodnight because we knew maybe she won't be here in the morning. It just never prepares you for that moment. Never. Because she always was. She always was there the next morning. And you'd been thinking since she was two, it could be any day. So to go, go 13 more years. Yeah. You just don't expect it. Right. So, of course, I called my mom in and the rest was kind of a big blur. Something kind of interesting. One of my hospice ladies was, her name was Teresa, and she was, she was a godsend. She was like the person that all along had told me, she said, when Emily passes, you need to call me right away. Well, I didn't. In my panic, I called 911, which was exactly what I wasn't supposed to do. And right. so I'm, I'm saying this to parents to, to know this. So all of a sudden there's like six cop cars outside my house because I call 911 and said my daughter passed away. All of a sudden there's six cop cars outside my house. Now I'm not like taking that all in because I'm groping with, you know, in the meantime, yes. my husband had come home and they're questioning him. And then my sister came and they're questioning her. I didn't know any of this. And then they're waiting for the medical examiner and he, you know, and they're like kind of blocking me from going in the room. And finally he goes in and he said, yes, it was natural. I don't know how he knew that, but somehow he could tell. But there was all this, you know, I didn't realize after there was all this like, oh yeah, how did they know I hadn't, you know? Yeah. Whatever. And uh, it was such a bizarre thing to realize after. But then my then my um, hospice nurse showed up and, and they said, who are you? You know, you can't come in. She goes, I'm the hospice nurse. And they're like, oh, that's why I was supposed to call her first. <laughs> yes. be there when they came. But anyway, um, you know, the rest is kind of really a blur, you know, yeah. that whole period after you know, my family came. Um, one of the things that I did want to share was all through Emily's life, I talked with my husband and my daughter about grieving. And I said, you know, everybody grieves differently. So it's okay, however you grieve when that time comes. Mm-hmm. However, I was a big hypocrite because my form of grieving was very outward. My daughter and my husband went in her bedroom and shut the door and wanted quiet and didn't want a bunch of people. And I just loved having all my siblings and their family around me like a big nest. They were not getting comfort from that at all. And initially I was actually even upset with them thinking like, well, you know, why aren't they feeling the way that I'm feeling? Which, you know, almost funny now in a way, you know, because all those years of telling them that. But I think you want a sense of camaraderie when you're going through that. You want somebody to feel it the way that you're feeling. When those closest to the situation don't, it's a, it's a very lonely feeling. Right. But it's right. not their fault. It is so personal and individual how you handle your grief. And it, as much as you know that in your head, it's hard in your heart to live it, though. 
to live it differently. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Marcy, that's mm-hmm. exactly the truth. You know, my daughter was eighth grade, like that big pivotal period in your life, you know, and all of a sudden she has to cope with this. And I, my husband was incredibly brave. He offered to go to the school and tell her and pick her up because I, I, I could not even imagine having to look her in the face and tell her. I just. Yeah. I mean, it's a horrible thing. I had to do that. It's horrible. After she passed too, while she was still here, I couldn't touch her. I was afraid to touch her. It was really interesting. I never would have thought that, but I just could not touch her because the time that I touched her, she felt hollow. Like she was already gone, you know, she wasn't here anymore. I think it just, it was more than I could bear. So the only thing I could touch on her was her hair. And I always have loved her hair. It's sort of been a theme through my poetry is Emily's beautiful golden hair. My sister, when she came, she climbed right into bed with Emily and hugged her and kissed her and loved her. And I always said later, I said, you know, I didn't, it didn't connect with me at the moment, but I said, you know, you did all that for me because I was not able to do it. Um, Yeah. I, I totally understand that. I, you know, I was 15 when my grandmother died and I remember like everyone, my, my other people in the family all touched her and kissed her after she was gone. And so I like felt pressure to do that. And she was so cold and so hard that it stuck with me forever. So a few years later, when my mother died, I did not touch her because I just didn't want that feeling. And so then when my son died too, I only touched his hair just the same. I did his hair because he always liked it done in a certain way. And I was trying to tell the funeral director how he wanted it. And, and, um, he said, well, why don't you do his hair? And so I did his hair, but I, I wouldn't touch his skin because I just didn't want that cold, hard feeling to stick with me like it did, you know, with my grandmother. Just couldn't. Yes, I know exactly. It's very comforting for me to hear you say that because I just felt like, wow, what was wrong with me that I wouldn't touch my own No, child. I just couldn't. It just, but- it has never gone away since I was 15 since my grandmother died I just yeah yeah, I've never gotten over that cold feeling so yeah when my mom passed away I couldn't touch her either even when my cat passed away I couldn't I just like I don't know you know I think it's it's such a a moment of reality you know it's real and you sense from that it was more than the coldness was it felt yeah. hollow, yeah. empty. It was such an affirmation that she was no longer there. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. what was hard to bear. You know, looking at her, she had obviously gone peacefully in her sleep. Thank God. Um, I don't think she struggled. I think I would have heard her because I heard every little noise she made from the time she was born because there was always a chance of a seizure. So I was like 24 7 on alert, you know. But still, yeah, that, hard. that was. You know, then I had, I I will say this, I'm grateful I did. It was hard, but I had, because I knew about her, I had gone ahead to the funeral home. Well, I tried two times and it didn't, I couldn't follow through. Probably the third time, probably maybe two or three years before she passed, something, maybe two years before. I went to the funeral home and I got everything set up. I picked out her casket. I, we talked about yeah. Just talked about everything. You know, I gave them, you know, all the information with her 
life insurance, excuse me, her life insurance, her birth certificate, all the paperwork that you would need. I got that all in there. So they had everything. And I'm really, really grateful because yeah. I didn't have to do all that on top of all the other stuff you still have to do at the end. That in my case, because I knew Emily was going to be gone sooner. I'm very thankful that that was done ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. It it's was hard. hard. But, so, you know, the funerals are kind of a big blur. I do remember at the cemetery when the service was done, I don't remember a whole lot yeah. to be honest with you, Marcy. Um, I don't know how your how it was for you, but it was all sort of a blur for me. They said, do you want to stay while we lower her? And I just panicked and I'm like, no. And I like literally just about ran out of the cemetery. I'm like, I cannot see you lower her yeah. into that ground. Yeah. I cannot do it. Yeah, we didn't either. They didn't even ask though, so. Well, it's really interesting. My one sister was like, oh, I was really hoping that they would do that. I, she said it felt like it would have been a good feeling of closure for me. I'm like, well, you could have stayed, but yeah. So, uh -huh. you know, you could have stayed if you wanted to stay. Unfortunately, you were driving with somebody else, so you didn't have a choice, but oh. So I'm going to read a poem about how I felt in some of the early months of Emily passing. This poem is called Nothing. Nothing. I want to do nothing. So much to do on the list. Gardens, laundry, meals, cleaning. I want to lay, sit, sleep, sleep more and more, then some more. I do not want to draw, paint, sketch, or play my violin. I should move, eat, drink water, get dressed, take a shower. I must completely remake myself and it's entirely too much. I cannot do it. That reminds me much of what Gwen says. You know, Gwen is a frequent guest on the show, and she always says, you can't should yourself. <laughs> Don't should yourself. Yes. I love that saying. I love that saying. But, you know, there was that sense of that. I mean, the first months... Of course, it's the fall now, okay? So you're going into yeah. all the holiday season, which really sucked. I just was in a yeah. fetal position on my couch. I, I just, I didn't care. I, I really, I couldn't care. It wasn't that I didn't yeah. care. I couldn't care. I would get up, brush my teeth sometimes, run a comb through my hair before they came home, and that was about it. We, we lived on grilled cheese sandwiches and canned soup yeah. and takeout pizza. I mean... To the point by after a month, I'm like, okay, if I see another pizza, I think I'm going to throw up. I just, I didn't want to cook. Nobody else wanted to cook. Nobody was hungry. Um, yeah. And then again, the holidays, the holidays are about family and everywhere you turn are signs, cards, TV shows, TV commercials, yeah. signs on the road. I mean, you cannot avoid it. It's all about family, 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 family from Thanksgiving on. It was brutal, and yeah. I'm sure, yes, I had my beautiful daughters still, and yes, I had my wonderful husband. Well, it's just there's something so big that's missing and such a huge hole in the family that it just isn't the same. It just isn't. Why don't you talk about what poetry has meant to you and how that has helped you in your journey? For as far back as I can remember, I've written, and um Specifically from high school on, I've always written poetry. It has sort of come to be to me a way to formulate my feelings 
formulate my thoughts, work through an issue or a problem, work out how to understand a situation, comforting. I didn't write a lot while Emily was alive. Um, looking back, there's not a whole lot of, I wasn't a big journaler, but I, I did write poetry or do a, a short you know, thing. I don't have a lot from when she was alive, really. Well, you were busy. <laughs> 24 seven busy. Yeah. Literally. I mean, I guess I'll, you know, throw this out. You don't, it's really hard to comprehend what it's like to have a special needs child unless you have, it's a, it's a different kind of 24 seven than with your other children. Mm -hmm. um, you can never let down. You can't like when your other children go to bed at night and you tuck them in, Oh, you maybe have a little worry or something, but generally you kind of, you know, are okay. You go to bed and it's a good thing. You could never do that with Emily. You always had to, you were always just aware. You always had to have your phone charged. You always had to be ready to drop whatever you were doing and go, whether you're at the art museum or trying to volunteer at North Kent Service Center, or you had to always be ready to be there. And yeah. so um, it was a very, you know, I was very adrift after. And so the poetry was a way that helped me kind of work through all my feelings. I would spend a lot of time at the cemetery, interestingly enough, just sitting in my car by her writing things that would help me and um, work through the different things as they would come up. It was very cathartic. And I'm so grateful that I had it. And through the years, I would share pieces and people would, you know, be thankful that they had read it because it, you know, would touch something in them or their experience or, yeah. So the writing has always been my, my way of dealing with grief. And it, it still is, even now with all the stuff that's going on um, with, you know, George Floyd and everything. I mean, I've been writing a lot, just trying to, you know, express my feelings and my concern and my anger sometimes. So here's a poem that I wrote about how I felt, one of my many how I felt after Emily passed away things. It's just mm -hmm. called Siren Calls. When Emily died, it seemed as if I was drowning, grasping, flailing, submerged, too faint to even swim, hurled into my own fetus, looking for hers, rocking my body like a baby, clutching a pillow, her pillow, in precarious need, drowning indeed, phantomless, color, co coffee-colored, shadowy, opaque water, swirling mermaid hair entangling my ankles, luring me down, 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 taking my very breath with it. Wow, that's powerful. The sound, that's how it felt to me, like something was dragging me to somewhere I didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think, um, and I think from your last podcast I, I was listening to, or no, it was your beautiful writing, by the way, Marcy, about oh. your son's clothing yeah. and in the hamper. I had also written something about your children's things and what that means. So I'm going to share that too, if you don't okay, mind. Okay, go ahead. All of your things, we are often understood by the things we love or have loved. So true of Emily's belongings. A hundred stuffed animals, the funny singing ones, usually holiday related, funny bunnies or spinning octopuses, 
her favorite rolling bee and spinny toy, the many books we read to her over and over, especially if she smiled, or better yet, laughed. A closet filled with colorful clothes, far too many, with matching hair ties. The birdmobile that always moved gently in the breeze through her window. New shoes, old shoes, and years and years of orthotics. Piles of blankets stacked on her shelves as she was always cold. One even made by her great-grandmother with the softest flannel she could find. Medical items, G-tubes, tape, pads, diapers, feed bags, syringes, seizure meds, lavender lotion. All these and so much more. She was more than the sum of this, but after she was gone, it was the only tangible proof she had been here. So I'd lie on her bed, clutching her big teddy bear, faint hint of lavender still lingering, pretending it was her as I would drift off to sleep. Thank you. Those same memories, too, lying in Andy's bed. When I'd lie in her bed, I would always think, this is the view that Emily saw. Yes, yes. This is what she would see. And it yep. somehow made me feel connected to her. Yep. And it was comforting. Andy had a very special bed. It was like a canopy, kind of. It looked like a tent. So it had canvas on top. So he called it his tent bed. So then when I lay in his bed and stare up at that canvas, you know, it's always just like, that's that's what he used to do. See that yeah. canvas. Emily's bed was a a different kind of bed. She, because of her seizures, she couldn't sleep in a regular bed. And because she could move, she couldn't stay in a hospital bed either because she would scoot her way off of it and fall out. Mm-hmm. So um, it took me a year and a half to fight for this bed. But I finally got her a bed that was all enclosed with like mesh. So it was kind of like a canopy too, but the outside was all mesh. So if she uh-huh. would fall over and have a seizure, it would be into the mesh and she couldn't be hurt. Of course, we weren't going to need it after, you know, and this is interesting to me. So many people that I've known, particularly, excuse me, other parents with special needs children, some some parents like immediately got rid of everything and gave it away and found people who need it. And, you know, it, that's what worked for them to share it. I could not let go of things. It took me the longest time to choose to let go of anything. Some things I didn't have a choice over airway oxygen showed up and said, Hey, I'm picking up the pump, you know, but even that, I remember when they were wheeling it down the driveway to the thing, I just cried because it was like, it'd been part of my life for 15 years. Yeah. I just felt like bits and pieces of myself were being taken away. And the last thing, big thing to go was her bed. And I would just get close to giving it away and I, I couldn't do it. I just could not do it. It took me three years before I finally let go of her bed. I I needed it there for me. And at one point, you know, I found out about a family who, these beds are very hard to come by. The insurances do not want to buy them because they're too expensive. And that's why I had to fight so long to get it. But I found out about a family who had a child who really needed this bed and, um, and they were not able to get it and they were just frantic. And I knew it was the right time. Yeah. And I knew it was going to be hard, but it was like ripping off a Band-Aid. It's like, okay, you just it's going to hurt no matter when you do it. Now or 10 years from now, it's going to hurt. Right. So just do it and walk through the grief. And I guess that's one of the other things, Marcy, that I feel like I, I myself personally learned through my grief journey is that 
you have to walk through it. You can't, you can choose not to, but I think what happens if you don't is it builds up inside and comes out in other ways later. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely true. Why don't you talk about uh, the book and what's happening with that? I have been working for, since Emily passed, I've been gathering together poems that I have been writing all along the way about my grieving, basically, with the intent at some point of putting it into a book. But I wasn't really sure how that was going to happen and whether I'd ever have the money to make it happen and all the you know things. But that had always been my intent. So I met this friend uh, on Facebook on um, Facebook, who was a friend of my brother's, and we just kind of really connected about grieving. And um, he had just lost his mother and had some other experiences. And in talking, and he always loved the things that I would post, the poetry that I would post. And so I was telling him one day, I said, yeah, my dream is to do a poem, a, a book of poetry about Emily and, you know, loving and losing Emily. And he said, well, I'll help you do that book. We also really bonded, and he was a wonderful supporter of my writing, but also of my grief journey. That's wonderful. And yeah, just a really became a very dear friend. I, I I could not have done it without him. And so I put this put the poetry together of her of the grieving part. But I realized then um, somebody said you really need to have some kind of forward because you need to explain a little bit more about Emily. You know? Right. So I had these initial poems that kind of just tell all the things we've talked about today to kind of give us a background. Then the book goes into sort of what I call the dream sequence, which was when she died and the funeral and everything that was just sort of like, you know, you don't remember, you don't remember, you don't remember, kind of like with dreams, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then then the rest of the book are poems about my, my handling my grief and the journey of going through that what it felt like for me. Um, my hope is that everybody's journey is different. Your journey and my journey, but just in moments that we've had today, it's obvious there's like a common denominator, you know, that binds us when we lose someone, but particularly lose a child. I'm hoping that this book can bring some comfort, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and camaraderie, if nothing else. You know that you're not alone in this journey. There are others who have walked this road before you too. And yeah, I, I've had people say different times, it's like, "Oh, thank you for that writing." You know, you put into words what I was feeling, but I I didn't know how to express. Mm-hmm. Well, you initially reached out to me because you sent me a poem after oh, listening right. to a podcast. You sent me a poem, and then you had said that you were working on a book of poetry, and that's when I asked if you would want to be on. I had two more poems I wanted to read. One is very short. So this one is called To All Those with Medically Fragile Children, and this is a shout-out to all my friends who have children that were like Emily. Mm-hmm. I always said when Emily was alive, present traumatic stress syndrome. What will happen next? When? Because it will. Not maybe, but always when. You have to be strong to keep moving through this way of living. You have to dig so deep it pushes aside muscles, veins, and bone to an inner core that is as tough as granite while remaining as tender as cotton fluff. And when the journey ends, your body and soul are at loss. It is forgotten how to live in the normal state of things where every sound doesn't mean a potential crisis 
or phone calls could mean a trip to ER. Your life, crazy, a never-ending on-hold call. I'm still recouping Emily's 15 years with me. I'm tired, so often tired, as if my once my body stopped, it could not revive. No amount of water or sustenance could bring her back to my life before her. I see and feel potential stress and drama in situations I never would have before she was with me. I've been reconditioned and impermanently changed. If you are still on this journey, just know my heart sits by yours. I'll never forget. It is part of my DNA. That's beautiful. Forever will have a deep spot for my friends who are yeah. still going through this journey. Mm-hmm. And times like this with the COVID, because they pray to God their child doesn't get sick they, for, for some other reason, so they have to go to the hospital. It's a mm-hmm. very hard life. I've met some of the most courageous, incredible people in my journey through that. Even in the grieving part, Marcy, um, I remember, you know, that that horrible time after when people start throwing out all the oh, they're in a better place and, you know, they're happy now and they're in heaven with Jesus and not poo-pooing any of it, but she wasn't here and I was, Yeah. and it made me mad. It made me mad, but I guess my age probably helped me in this situation. It was like, I wanted to just scream, stop saying all those things. I know. But you don't want to do that because they're no. they're coming from a good place and it makes yes. them feel better. And yes. so you just nod and smile, but inwardly, you're right. You're just so angry because it isn't yes. the right thing to say. Thank you again so much for agreeing to come on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I do want to hear that one more poem that you wanted to read and maybe we'll just end with that. Someday. When I'm no longer here to tend your bed, I left you flowers, forget-me-nots, lilies of the valley, orange tiger lilies, all flowers that need no fussing to return. So, in spring, when all life is awakening, you'll know I loved you. Thank you again, Kathleen. You're welcome, Marcy. Blessings to you. Mm Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.